Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Almost 20 years ago now, a tiny town in Georgia took a hit to its schools, its fire department, and its kids' baseball teams. And there was pretty much just one reason. Pants. Which might seem a little weird and specific, but actually, Blue Ridge, Georgia, wasn't just a town built around pants. It was a town built around one particular type of pants, Levi's. And not only were they employing people in the town, a good portion of the town, maybe two-thirds of the town, they also, you know, donated stacks and books to the library. They paid for the lights on the football field. They bought the Jaws of Life for the fire department. They, they sponsored the Little League teams. Dana Thomas is a journalist and author of the book Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. I talked to her in 2019. She says that for more than 40 years, Levi's had been making jeans in Blue Ridge. The company had meant a whole lot to the town, which once upon a time in America was not all that uncommon in the apparel industry. They had basketball teams and chess night and bridge nights you know, just in their unions, and they had theater groups, and they would help with education and night school to raise skills and reading levels. The unions really did treat and take and look after the workers in a way that when it goes offshore, nobody, they just exploit, exploit, exploit the workers. That golden age of clothes manufacturing, though, had long since ended by 2002, when the Levi's plant in Blue Ridge shut down. Workers lost their jobs attaching rivets to jeans, putting in zippers, making belt loops. It was a change in fortunes for lots of people, says Thomas. For American consumers, who were about to get exposed to an avalanche of cheap clothes from overseas. For workers in Asia, who were about to get a ton more jobs in the garment industry, even if they weren't particularly good jobs. And it was a change for those on the cutting edge of something called fast fashion, people who were about to get very, very rich. One of the most amazing moments for me when I was working on the book was that at the time I was doing the research, the second richest person in the world after Bill Gates was the owner of Zara. And he was worth $68 billion. And at the same time, I was down in Bangladesh meeting with garment workers, and they were being paid $68 a month. And I thought, right, this shows you when we talk about wealth inequality and economic disparity of today and that the rich are getting richer and richer and the poor are getting poorer and poorer, here was the perfect example that this man was the second richest man in the world and he'd made his fortune on the fingers of these people who were being paid $68 a month and couldn't afford to house and feed and clothe their families. The collapse of the garment factory called Rana Plaza that Thomas referenced there, it happened in 2013 in Bangladesh, and more than a 1,000 people died. But the allure of fast fashion, from Zara to H&M to Topshop, it's continued to reel us in and transform how we buy clothes. Zara was the one who started doing this about 30 years ago, and they saw an uptick in the number of times consumers visited their store. At the time, it was an average of four to five times a year. Basically, they got the spring-summer collection, they got the fall-winter collection, and you probably went two or three times each time. When they started doing drops every couple weeks, it multiplied the draw of customers into stores by four times. They started visiting 17 times a year instead of four or five. And of course, you visit 17 times, you buy even one thing, you've bought 
17 things instead of four. The clothes were cheap, the fashion was new almost all the time, and we, the consumers, loved it. Clothes that we now think of as disposable, that we kind of burn through. So that's why it's fast fashion. It's fast made, it's fast sold, it's fast consumed, it's fast thrown away. How did this happen? Well, for one thing, theft. At least until several months ago when the pandemic hit, patterns and ideas for clothes could be shown on runways in Paris, Instagrammed, scanned, and prepared for production runs in Asia within a few days. Of course, that theft worked because of technology. And the fight over whether we should value people or tech when it comes to what to wear, well, it's not a new fight. It's been going on for more than 200 years. And if you think back to, you know, Oliver Twist, Oliver Twist and all of his pals were working in the cotton mills in Manchester. That's where the Industrial Revolution began, was in the cotton mills of Manchester. That was the very beginning of it. Like, And then we got the steam engine, and then we got, you know, everything else. But it started with cotton mills and the spinning, automated spinning. In the early 1800s, people who became known as Luddites smashed machines used to make clothes because good, skilled jobs were going away, and they knew it. Technology was driving us towards something new. They were terrible jobs where people were paid very, very poorly. They worked very, very hard. It was usually women because the men were left on the farms to tend the farms. And then the children came along because who's going to look after the children? And they were housed by the factory owners, but in slums. They had hours that were endless. This, you have to remember, something I didn't think about till I was working on the book, we didn't actually have time as we think of it today, until the mid to late 19th century with time zones and hours of the clock that were you know, set so everybody knew they worked nine to five. It was sort of sun up to sundown. It was a bit loose. And you worked all night long, too. And things didn't get much better when clothes making moved to Boston and then New York, where tuberculosis was rampant in sweatshops, and then to the South. It wasn't until the 1930s, until Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, that massive reforms started to protect workers. But for the consumer, the downside of regulation was obvious. Clothes were really expensive. Clothes actually during the Depression cost the same amount as we pay today, women's wear. That the, what they called the secretary special, which would be like H&M and Zara, was running about $20 to $25 a piece, like we pay today. And that was during the worst economic era of modern times. So that shows how cheap clothes are and why we buy them en masse. And when Thomas says $20, she's talking about $20 in the 1930s, which would be hundreds of dollars today. In the last 80 years, not surprisingly, almost everything has gotten more expensive. Food and cars and housing. But clothes? Not so much. Americans used to have just a few outfits to wear during the course of the year, which becomes clear when you look at the tiny closets of 100-year-old houses. Clothes were a major investment. Now we buy, on average, 68 items of clothing per person per year. And we wear each one about seven times before we toss it. Though this year, when many of us have been getting out a little bit less than usual, well, it's probably an outlier. That shift, though, towards more clothes, towards cheaper clothes, which most of us rarely think about, it has reordered the global economy. It's changed our environment, and it's altered international politics. 
And lots of us, as shown by the earnings of fast fashion brands, can't get enough. In some sense, if you had to pick the event that foreshadowed our love affair with fast fashion, it happened just about a year after Bill Clinton was sworn into office, the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, in 1994. But it wasn't President Clinton who saw the future most clearly, a future in which clothes-making would move from the U.S. to Mexico and then to Asia. It was, says Dana Thomas, his 1992 opponent, Ross Perot. There will be a giant sucking sound going south. So we, if, if the people send me to Washington, the first thing I'll do is study that 2,000-page agreement and make sure it's a two-way street. And it's interesting because one of the things that NAFTA didn't do that does happen in Europe, we have the same kind of idea in Europe with the, with the common market in Europe, but it's regulated out of Brussels, and there are certain levels of safety and, and worker care that must be met. And they didn't include that in NAFTA. If NAFTA had included that workers in Mexico must be treated the same way and have factory safety standards that are the same as those in Canada and the United States, that would be a game changer for, well, okay, so they were cheaper labor. That makes sense. But one of the reasons they were also cheap was because they were in these shoddy factories with horrible conditions, and the worker was treated really badly, and there was no investment in the worker whatsoever like you have in the United States or Canada. So it wasn't really a fair playing field in that sense, and that's why all these jobs went to Mexico and then later down through Latin America and then across the Pacific to Asia. The farther away they got, the less oversight there was, hmm. the more of a like Wild West it became. What happened was they began to subcontract. Hmm. Levi's used to own its factories and produced everything in America in small towns. They also supported small towns through corporate welfare. Well, when they offshored, they got rid of all that. They didn't have to pay pensions. They didn't have to pay workers' union rates. They didn't have to pay for lights on football fields. They didn't have to sponsor Little League teams anymore. They just contracted with a factory. They said, we'll pay you this amount. You make everything. You worry about everything. You pay the electric bills. You deal with the hiring and the firing of the workers. We don't need to deal with that anymore. And they they got out of the manufacturing business, essentially. And that's what China and Asia offered, was yeah. that we'll build the factories. We'll hire the people. We have lots of young hands that need good jobs. And they weren't always very good jobs, but they were jobs. And we need to create, you know, get this labor force working. We'll take care of all that. And we'll just contract as many different companies we can in our factories. I saw this when I went to that factory in China. And there on the same floor, there were maybe 10 different brands being produced all by the same, you know, hands Hmm. on an assembly line. And it was one row was working on one brand, and another row was working on another brand, another row was working on another brand. And that factory was just the handbag factory for most of the luxury industry. There were two or three of them in China, and they did it for everybody. So the whole model changed from top to bottom. And, they, and it was all just so much cheaper that they went for it. And that's when our towns were gutted. They were just gutted up and down the eastern seaboard and even on the west coast. Los Angeles was the second largest garment industry after New York City. New York City was gutted. At one point, we dropped down to only making 2.5% of all of our apparel in the United States after it being more than 90% for a long, long, long time, more than a century. Right. 
So let's get, uh, talk a little bit about the some of the environmental impacts of um, making clothes and just this rapidly expanding appetite that we have for clothes. We talked about how people used to have just a few dresses or suits or shirts or whatever it was, and now we buy dozens and dozens and dozens of these things every year. Um, taking like jeans as an example, because... So many people have a pair, we at all least, have them. right, have jeans in their closet. Give me a sense of, like, the chemicals, the water. Is there a big environmental impact for making a pair of jeans? Enormous, enormous. Well, first of all, one of the most amazing statistics that I came across in the book, I had no idea. I mean, I knew there was a lot. But at any given moment of the day, half the planet is wearing jeans. Wow. They are the most worn garment that has ever been in the history of mankind after, you know, socks and underwear. They were originally the most sustainable, if you think about it. When Levi Strauss invented them, they put the rivets, or he and his partner uh, invented them and put them in production, they put the rivets at the stress points so that they would hold together longer, so they would last longer. They were made of the sturdiest material you could find, denim. And, and miners, they were made for California miners during the gold rush who were you know, crawling around on earth all day long. And they would have to withstand this really tough existence and be passed on from miner to miner because they didn't have any money. And then when they struck gold, then they got out of there and they gave their jeans to the next guy and they went out and bought themselves a suit. So, you know, they were the original sustainable garment. And then in the 1980s, they became really fashionable. And one of the fashions was to buy them already pre-washed. Then when we started doing the stone washing, acid washing, pre-washing, well, that changed it up because we were laundering all these jeans on an industrial level, gallons and gallons and gallons of water, using things like acid to wash them. And often that water was just, you know, dumped. And now it goes into treatment plants in some places, but in other places where there's no oversight, as we talked about offshore, it's just dumped into rivers. And I saw one in Ho Chi Minh that was next to a, an, a former jeans processing plant where the river was dead. And it was thick and black like tar because all this this synthetic indigo had been dumped in there and all this cotton wisps and fly had been dumped in there and and it killed the river. It was nasty and it smelled horrible. I thought it was going to be, be ill on the spot. And that was not uncommon in Asia, you know, that rivers were being filled with runoff from these factories and the rivers were dying. They were getting so opaque that nothing could live in them because the light couldn't get through. Okay, but here's my question. It still seems like the power of the Zaras and the H&Ms and the Uniqlo's are tremendous. And in some tremendous. ways, at least just anecdotally, the I mean, they've opened in a lot of places. They're, they have a, a very big presence. Um, a lot of people Vast have... Vast wealth. Well, they, All three oh, they, of those families that you mentioned yeah. are in the top 50 richest people in the world. Multi, right, multi right. And a lot of people also have come to expect that a T-shirt costs, let's say, $12. Like, that, that, that's a reasonable price. Exactly. We've been conditioned to think this. And we've been, and we've been conditioned... We, we are addicted to this. They've gotten us addicted to it. So do you think that people will really say, you know, but I'm going to spend three times as much for a T-shirt because it's better for the planet? Oh, I mean, I mean, you know, there, you've got a lot of people feel like I, I can only afford so much. I only have so much out of my paycheck to pay for clothing. Do you really see things changing? 
Well, I hope so. That's why I wrote the book. I do believe that when you find out why that t-shirt cost $12 or $5, or recently there was a, a company that sold one pound sterling, so $1.50 bikinis, and they sold out in a minute and a half. What that means, that the, 12, the $10 t-shirt means that the person who made it was paid 10 cents, that they can't even afford to house, clothe, and feed their families, that it's probably been dyed with toxic chemicals, or the blue jeans, you know, with cyanide in them. Once you know that, you go like, oh my God, I had no idea. Maybe I won't keep investing in this. And also there is the question of quality. When you go and look at the organic cotton t-shirt versus that crummy $12 or $10 one, yes, that t-shirt may cost $50, but it's going to last more than five times longer than the one that you just bought that's a crummy white t-shirt for $10. And it will feel softer and better. You'll just, like, as soon as you put it on, you'll see the difference. And so I think we have to, like, recondition ourselves to think, no, I don't need 10 things at $100 that are junk that I'm going to burn through really fast and throw into the dump, but one thing that I'm going to love and cherish and wear forever and ever and pass down or share with my friends. Dana Thomas is the author of Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes. Thanks for joining us from Paris. Thank you so very much. It's been my pleasure. I talked with Dana Thomas last year. On our website, we've got info about some of the counter trends that she sees in the fashion world what she calls slow fashion. That's at innovationhub.org. You can always email us your thoughts and ideas about the show. We're at innovationhub at wgbh.org. We are also on Facebook and we're on Twitter at iHubRadio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Solinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.